0: Welcome to the Voices of Grambling, a digital oral history podcast, a series exploring the rich, nuanced history of Grambling State University, the city of Grambling, and the people who make it. This series is a collaborative project between students and faculty of the History Department of Grambling State University, as well as faculty from the University of Arkansas. The Voices of Grambling, a digital oral history project, has been made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities in partnership with the Social Science Research Council. Additional funding was provided by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Social Science Research Council, or the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities.
1: Good morning. I am Brian McGowan, and we are talking with Dr. Linda Brown-Wright. Welcome. Uh, Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for inviting me to
1: join you. I'm very
2: excited to um, talk with you today.
1: Fantastic. Well, let's just go ahead and dive right in. Uh, <laughs> okay. can, you, can you tell us a little bit about your background?
2: Okay. I grew up in Weston,
1: Louisiana.
2: I, am, I have two sisters. I'm the middle uh, child. I, at, a, at a young age, I became interested in my family history. My grandfather was a principal of a school in Catahoula Parish, and a school is named after him. And that was just fascinating to me. My grandfather, my mother was the youngest of seven living children, and it's 15 years between her and her oldest brother. So my grandfather was born, get this, in 1884. So I was always amazed at his history, and the family history, and I noticed that my grandfather and all of my aunts and uncles and my mother, they were teachers and preachers and social workers, and all of them went to college. And it was just amazing to me because, as you might imagine, I grew up in segregated schools. So I was always fascinated by that, and I uh, would ask my grandfather Questions and my mother's questions about the family because he and his children were educated, and some of his younger siblings he helped send them to college. Some of the older ones were were not formally educated, and so I wanted to know more about it. As it turns out, I guess in the early 1900s, a group of white uh, Christians, I think they were from Wisconsin, opened a school for black boys, I think, but I'm not sure if it was only black boys, but I think it was black boys who went. He was chosen to attend this school because of his math acumen, and so as a result of being chosen to attend that school, he went on to college. He went to Leland College in Bathroom Rouge, I think it was in Scotlandville. So he then met my grandmother, and then they uh, moved to Calhoun Parish, where my grandmother was from, and then they had seven living children, and all those children went to college. Well, my grandfather was uh, very prominent in the community. Uh, He was a teacher and a principal for 43 years. He taught sharecroppers how to read and write, and actually uh, was had to be sent away and went away because uh he was going to be killed by white people who did not want him to teach black people how to read and write and one of the things i learned in all of this as i've processed it is that there are some good white people in the world there were some back then uh because they told my grandfather what was going to happen and so he went away to South Louisiana, left his family for a year, and then came back. But he still continued to teach young people how to read and write and all of that. I say that I tell you a little bit about the background because that was a seminal point in my life that was I was fascinated by his story and also uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I started reading about Dr. King at 10-11 on the bookmobile, uh, What Man of Man, Why We Can't Wait, Chaos for Community. I started reading those books at a young age, and I was like, I was, I was motivated by my grandfather to impact change because I realized the transformational nature of an education from my grandfather's story. Because As he went to school and became educated, so did his children and then their children and their children and so forth and so on. So that's when I learned about the transformational nature of an education, what it can do, how it can transform your life. That, along with Dr. King, motivated me at a young age to become a person who wanted to impact change. And so as a result, at the age of 12, I was one of seven to desegregate the junior high school in Ruston, Glenview Junior High School, and uh, anyway, that was that was uh, before forced. That was when freedom of choice happened, and so I decided I wanted to go then to uh, desegregate, not integrate, because it wasn't integration. It was desegregation, and I see a great difference in that. So as a result, I, from seventh grade to 12th grade, I was in desegregated schools. Well, my classmates went to, came to Ruston High, were forced to come to Ruston High in my 10th grade year. So that meant all the people from Lincoln Elementary went to Ruston High. Uh, Ruston High, I mean uh, Lincoln High, had been a very prominent team, had a lot of sports, awards, trophies, championships, and all of those things were just thrown away. They and and all of the persons from my classmates and, and below were forced to come to Ruston High. As you might imagine that was not a good time for uh students to be forced to come and everything uh your school colors your school name everything was just thrown away so as a result there was a lot of dissension i was very active in attempting to bring peace i was a little martin luther king jr and i wanted to you know, have a peaceful protest and for social justice and social change. So as a result, and I'm skipping over some things, but as a result of my passion for that, I would work with the administration and the school board and everything to try to impact change and to get permission to do things, but they would not give us permission so, you know, there were times that I did some things, and my parents were very supportive. My mom and dad were very supportive of me, and I would, you know, do different things, call meetings in the community. we vote, you know, for certain things. We block voted, and there were all kinds of things we did in the community before we went to the school, and they didn't understand how we were winning things, but we would, you know, nominate a lot of white people and not white people would nominate themselves. And then we would not, you know, we would know who we were going to vote for because we would have our vote in the community. So I was very engaged in trying to peacefully impact change and to realize social justice. I did that throughout high school. One of the things we did, and I, my daddy threw away my things because he thought it was trash. Uh, to my bed, but that was I. I remember once we did. I did. I led co-wrote a newsletter, newspaper, and we at Lewis Temple Church. Uh, Reverend J, uh, James Johnson was the pastor of the church then, and he allowed us to use the church to mimeograph you remember mammograph Machines, <laughs> to Memeograph, a newsletter. And so we got up at 5 o'clock in the morning to organize, you know, uh, where people would be to give the newsletter of black history to students as they got off the bus. Of course, I knew that I was going to get called to the office. So about, you know, 8.15, 8.30, I got called to the office and, You know, what, why did I do this? What was, you know, what was it about? But the good thing about it was that I had supportive parents, support from the community, and nobody in the school system would put me out of school because they, I was nonviolent. I was, you know, I requested to do things and they didn't allow those things to happen. So, you know we had to try another way to uh, make sure that we got our history, we learned about history and all of that. so as a result, I was able to do some things and didn't get put out of school. I'm a fast forward, and I'm trying to give you some critical incidents at at the my senior year, the persons who had come from Lincoln High School said to me, you know, Linda, you, you know, we've been listening to you about nonviolence and, you know, we've been patient, Uh, you know, we haven't been able to realize our school colors, our name, we've been stripped of everything, one of the things that we would like is to have a black speaker for commencement. Okay, so I went to the principal. Mr. Higginbotham, and I said to him that, uh, you know, what what the students would like, that you know, they had come here, um, been stripped of everything, uh, we haven't had a black speaker ever at the school, we were requesting a black speaker. And he said, uh, okay, that, that they could do that. So I went back and I told my class that, we would, that they had agreed to, that we would have a black speaker. Well, I was connected to all of the black leaders in the community in Rustin and Grambling. My parents were, you know, in the Voters League and ACP. We were just very active in social justice matters. And so it kept, at that time, students got out of school, out of high school, like a week before graduation. And so we had gotten out of school, and I, the my classmates kept saying, Linda, who is the speaker? And I, you know, kept waiting. I said, well, they keep telling us that, you know, we're going to be pleased. And, and so I said, just be patient. We're going to be pleased. And I told them what I was told. It got to be two days before graduation. And the speaker came out in the paper and it was a white male. And I was crushed. I was so disappointed and angry at that point. And I felt like I had let my class down. I felt, I just felt very used. I felt that I had not been able to, you know, make this happen. They had promised me that it would happen. And so as a result of that, I said, I don't want to go to graduation. They can just send my diploma. I don't, I really don't care. I can't do this anymore. I was just very hurt. Several of the leaders in the community came by to talk with me. And one of the things they said, they said, Linda, you're going to get many diplomas in your life but some people this will be the only one that they get and if you don't participate many other people won't participate and it could be trouble and so they said think about it i understand how you feel but we really hope you'll participate in commencement And so I, you know, talked with my parents and prayed about it. And, of course, you know, somebody telling you this might be the only commencement that some people have, you know, that's that's meaningful to me. So I agreed to attend the graduation. I don't remember it. I was very, I was just so disillusioned and so hurt. Uh, That was a very critical incident in my life. Okay, so I had um, already decided I was going to attend Gramlin State University. And I went to Gramlin. I had a goal in my mind that I just wanted to immerse myself in getting through with school, going on to graduate school. The, you know, I just wanted, I, I wanted to actually be a community psychologist. I wanted to change the world. And I forgot to tell you that at the age of 12, I had declared that I wanted to be a psychologist because I wanted to understand what led to people, human beings, treating other human beings the way we were treated. Because we were treated very badly uh, when when I first went there in the seventh grade. I forgot to mention that. So I went to Gremlin. I was on a fast track. I took Ten hours the first summer. I took twenty hours the next fall. So by before a year, I was a sophomore. That January of the year that I started, I was a sophomore, and I just was on this fast track. I didn't want to do have anything to do with Rustin, with white people. I was just, I was really very broken. I I would call it at that at that point. I. I Still was fighting for white, but I wanted to. I just needed time to be with my people, to to be judged by who I was and not by my skin color or anything else. I just wanted to just have time to immerse myself in Grambling, and that's what I did. But I had a. I was on fast track, and I, as I said, I was in psychology. And I loved it. I loved it. I I was involved. I just, you know, was just. I wouldn't even go downtown in and I wouldn't go downtown. I wouldn't do anything, because I just it was just too much. And I forgot to tell you that even when I went to when I first desegregated the school, the uh, classmates on the white classmates could get jobs wrapping gifts and. Doing things, we couldn't get a job. We couldn't wrap a gift. We couldn't do anything. And so I just had a very distasteful experience, and I didn't want to have anything to do with white people. I just wanted to just be with black people. And so that's what I did. It came to the. I was looking. I was uh, like I said, I was a sophomore. I started in 1973. By the January of '74, I was a sophomore already. And I was just on this fast track. So then I was like, you know, I want to go to graduate school. And it dawned on me that I was going to have to be involved with white people to go to graduate school because at that time, I think Coward was the only HBCU that had a PhD program. And so the chances were that I was going to end up in a graduate program that was at a white institution and so i thought to myself that i need to kind of re-enter the real world because there was no way i was going to allow the very people who had done those things to me to keep me from allow that to keep me from getting my Uh, education. That was one of the reasons that I, well, the main reason that I decided to be an exchange student. And I believe Dr. Copeland was the one who shared the information. He was chair of the department at that time.
1: You mentioned a little bit about growing up in Ruston and and wanting to be at, in, in grambling I wondered if you could just speak for a a moment or two on kind of how you felt about being at a at an HBCU that was in a specifically black town, um, as, a, as opposed to Ruston. So <laughs> maybe you could talk a little a little bit about that, the differences okay. that you experienced living in Grambling versus living in. Rustin, even though they're right next door to each other, they're yes. obviously yes. very, very different.
2: Yes, they're very different. And you have to realize that during that time, Rustin was very segregated. So uh, as far as, you know, basically, I, my every day was in a all-Black world. You know, I went to, you know, school initially in the Black community. In fact, my school was right across the street from my house. My mother was a teacher. You know, uh, you know, I was very involved in church and all of that. But the living outside of that community in Ruston was horrible. As I mentioned, I couldn't even get a job to wrap gifts as my classmates could. I couldn't there was just things I could not do. And so that experience with the school and how I was led to believe that they were going to do something different, and then I put my name and my word, I gave my word to my fellow classmates, I had a very negative feeling about Ruston. I would not go downtown in Ruston. It was about two years, I know, and maybe more, that I would not go downtown in Ruston. And, you know, I had declared to my parents that, I didn't want to have anything to do with us. And I forgot to tell you, I was was involved, very involved in high school. I was in National Honor Society. I was in the uh, student council. I ran for president. I'm secretary of my class in the 10th grade. You know, I was very involved. But it just was, I remember and I was on yearbook staff, that's what I was going to tell you, And I would not, my yearbook staff picture is in my front yard because I would not step foot back over at school. And the interesting thing is that my classmates, who I've been with since seventh grade now, so they knew me, my classmates came to my house, which is very significant because in Ruston when you cross the tracks, it was still very segregated, that's when you entered the black community. And many of them had never been in the black community ever. So they came to my house, and my yearbook picture for the yearbook staff picture is in my front yard, which I thought was significant as well. But, no, I didn't have anything to do with anything in Ruston except my church, my family, you know, my community. But I didn't go downtown. I would not go downtown Ruston at all for those years that I
1: was a grandma. So you you had started to talk about uh, Dr. Copeland and the exchange program to Eau Claire. So yes. you talked a little bit about why you decided to do this. So how did other people react to you deciding to go to, to Eau Claire?
2: <laughs> well, my parents, uh, you know, uh, I was a middle child. So, you know, some middle child backed out. I was the one who tried to do good things, you know, to make my parents proud or to, you know, I just was a, I was always doing something different. I was always, you know, like a 12-year-old kind of saying, I want to, you know, go and impact change. And I'm looking at Dr. King and I'm, you know, when he passed away, it was like, you know, my parent had passed away or something. And he's still my vicarious mentor. I love, love him and his work. And so my parents said to me, they said, okay, we're going to let you go, but if you go, you can't come back until, you know, the program is over. And I said, okay, okay, I understand. You know, know, they're telling me this, even, even though I knew deep down that if I need to come home, I could come home. That's those that are the kind of parents I had, but they needed to say that because they wanted to make sure I knew what I was getting into. So, I, you know, my and my friends, you know, they they kind of were like, Oh, you want to do that? Are you sure? You know, and that kind of thing, but they knew that I was always kind of outside the box, I'm always doing something, so they were not that surprised. And my parents were not that surprised, they just said. You know, you're going to a cold place. You're going to a place, you know, with and they knew my story, so they, you know, there are very few black people you're gonna be around. All of these things they were telling me, but my thing was, I've got to think about my future. I cannot allow these people to, you know, fulfill my goals because I don't want to be around white people. That's I, I could not let that happen that was that was the main reason that was the main reason that i did it um, that was you know that was to me that was it was like linda you know i said to myself because i am a psychologist so i you know i think critically i think i'm a forward thinker oh I'm, I'm still like that i always think forward you know if this if you don't do this then what does that mean if you stay in this sheltered space then what are you going to do uh, next. So, and then, you know, and I had issues with Louisiana Tech. Let me just tell you this. My mother, who we were walking distance from Louisiana Tech, and she could not go to school at Louisiana Tech. So, my dad would pack us up, and we would move to, uh, we would go to Detroit. So, my mother went to school at Wayne State University and, and in the summers. And then my dad would come back and get us and then we would come back here. So I didn't, you know, I didn't think well of Louisiana Tech either. Well, I didn't think well of Louisiana Tech. That was and, that was critical for me. Yes. But what it did, what that did though, is that, and I realized that I was giving a speech a few years ago about uh, phenomenal women, and I closed with telling the story about my mom and what I realized is that just like I mean throughout my life I guess and with my grandfather and whatever and you know Dr. King you don't let anything stop you. My mother didn't say, Oh well I can't go to school. She and my dad decided that she would they would go she would go to Wayne State University and that showed me as a little girl that, you know, if a door closes you knock out a window. But you still, you know, achieve your goals. So that was something, you know, in my mind ever, you know, thinking about how am I going to achieve what
1: I need to achieve. Let's talk a little bit about the um, sort of the daily life uh, that you had while you were in college. What about your experiences at an HBCU in the in the mid '70s? Did you find that sort of liberating, did you find that a liberating experience? Did you find that a restrictive experience? What? Oh, yes. how, Absolutely how, liberating. Absolutely mm-hmm.
2: liberating. After what I had gone through.
1: What were your classes like while you were at Grambling?
2: I, to be honest, I don't remember. I remember, okay, let me tell you what I remember. I remember the family atmosphere. I was one of the last Ralph Waldo Emerson Jones students, and President Jones was just so down to earth, and he talked to students about, you know, how you don't let a degree change you, and, you know, it was such a family dynamic to me, and teachers really cared about you. And there were students who, for example, we go to class and somebody was missing. We had to go get them. They didn't just say, "Oh, they're not coming." You, they, and, and people. Some people think that was, you know, too much mothering and fathering of today. That's how they look at it. But I think a lot of students needed that because you're talking about many, many students were first generation students at that time. They didn't have parents to college and who could tell them what that was like and how you keep a schedule and, you know, what you needed to do. And so they needed that extra mothering, fathering that could help get them through. And so it was just a a family kind of atmosphere. Your professors really cared about you getting your work done and being successful they didn't just allow you to to fail without trying to help. And so I really appreciated that and um uh, it was you know, of course we had certain moves. I mean it's very it was very different than it is today. You know, we had to wear we had to go to convocation. It wasn't like if you wanna go, you had to go. Uh you you had to show up at things. I think on Sundays we Had to have on dresses, I believe. You know, there were certain rules to the university that made it more like your family, more like the family I came from anyway. And so I loved it. I I loved that I was just, I could be me. I could be, I didn't have to worry about white people. I could just enjoy college. I could enjoy my friends. I don't think... One of the things I do regret is that I I rushed through college. I do regret that. Uh, I finished in three years and did you know I just rushed? I, I was on a mission, and my mission, my rush was because I really wanted to get out and impact change. That was why I was rushed. But uh, I do remember you know i had I had a uh, my white. i had a my one of my major professors in psychology was a white professor dr Hammock and he you know worked he knew I wanted to go to grad school you know and I remember learning more about psychology I remember you know had people taking time to to talk to you a little bit more about what you were going to do with your degree. And I knew that I had to go to grad school, that it wasn't just, you know, going here. I knew that I had to go to grad school. So that was ever present in my mind. And so as I was getting ready to, you know, quickly go through college, I was like, oh, wow, wait a minute. I need to rethink some things. And when that exchange program was brought to my attention, that's the piece that that helps me to make the decision.
1: Did you live in the dorms at Grambling?
2: I did. I did. Do you happen to what remember which it? dorm you lived in? I lived in Wheatley. I lived in Adams.
1: Okay. What was and that? Both of
2: which are no longer
1: there, right? Uh, yeah, they've both been um, they've both been knocked down. Um, I, I believe there is now a dorm. I have to check this again, but I, I think they have named two of the new dorms, Wheatley and Adams. Okay, because I'm ones... sure
2: if Martha Adams is going to be rebuilt somewhere, it should, it should be somewhere, because that was yes. the first president's wife.
1: Exactly, mm-hmm. um, but the, uh, the the buildings that you lived in are are no yeah. longer there. Most yeah. of those buildings have been knocked down, and the ones that still yeah. exist from that era are now used for um, other purposes. They're no longer dorms. Yeah let me ask you what things were like in in wisconsin you know when you got up to (laughs) eau claire
2: okay the first night i was there it was 64 below wind chill factor
1: now that would be enough to send me home immediately
2: and you know I wanted to go home, right?
1: Oh, I bet you did. Yeah. Oh
2: my God, my tears froze on my face. Oh. But I am such a person that I'm determined. I'm gonna do if I'm if I say I'm gonna do something, I'm determined. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. And I kept telling myself, "You can do this. This is <laughs> torture, but you can do this." And I didn't want – I knew I could come home. Of course, I had parents. I knew I could come home. But I didn't want to – I didn't want to disappoint myself, and I didn't want to disappoint them. I just wanted to – I didn't want to disappoint the people that are grambling because I I, I grew up with the mantra, you you represent more than yourself. And so I did not want to miss – I didn't want to – I didn't want to – have anyone to be disappointed, including myself, in my decision not to play. As much as I wanted to come home those first few days, I, I said, uh uh-uh, I cannot do this. I think it was about seven of us that went, and I think I, at that time, my parents couldn't take me, so I, we, we got together. We went on a bus, I believe. Because that was like in the 70s. It was a train or a bus. I think it was a bus. And that, you know, that was that was kind of huge. Because, you know, we're a close-knit family. And, you know, my family was, you know, I left my bus, Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And I did not know there were zero black people in that town. Zero. Who lived there. I did not know that before I went. I don't think I knew that. There was a person who I guess was like the contact, the liaison. I think his name was Dr.
1: Stolter. Stolter. yeah.
2: The, yeah, Stolting?
1: Stolting, yeah.
2: Okay. And uh, See, I, I remember a little bit. No, and, you uh, do. That's,
1: that's, that's impressive.
2: <laughs> and he, he was very good with You know, getting us together, trying to make sure we felt engaged, welcomed. They gave a welcome for us. They gave, you know, lots of things. Uh, I think we had a couple trips to Minneapolis. You know, he tried to keep us engaged and not, you know, so we wouldn't be so homesick. I think I took 15 hours. I didn't take my 20 hours and stuff like that that I had been doing at Gramlin because I just, it was just a different setting. It was, you know, I just, it was too much different. It was too, it was a different environment. It was a different weather. It was a lot going on. But I think I took 15 hours, I think, but I'm not sure. It was very important for me to do good, to make good grades. And, and um I I can't remember what I made but I know it was at, it was at least a 3.0 but I can't remember exactly I think it was three point something it was interesting. I had a white roommate and she obviously had never you know been around black people so that was that was kind of interesting uh first time that had ever happened. And uh, so we both had to try to adjust to that. It was kind of touch and go for a while, but we, we you know, I I, I ended up uh, dealing with it and, you know, we dealt with it. I stayed in that room for the whole semester. I remember when it got to be about 30, 30 32 degrees, people were outside sun bathing.
1: <laughs>
2: and I'm like, oh, my God you know, you needed a different coat. Like, I had to buy a coat because the coat I had. And I kind of knew that, and we had decided we would wait to get a coat. I would get a coat in Wisconsin just so it would be the right kind of coat. And I remember um, needing to get a coat that wouldn't, that the wind could withstand and not, not go through and get to me as much. But and, and then those of us who were from Gramlin we would try to stay in touch as well, even without Dr. Stoteland Stoteland uh, yeah, and so we would, we would try to get together as well, but those are the things I remember most the classes were pretty much the same I think I took, I remember taking uh, I remember philosophy and Uh, psychology of learning I think I took there and you know I took some interesting courses it wasn't just it was some you know I had to study and and, uh, it was very important to me to do well
1: You spent some time talking earlier about your experiences with the white community in Ruston How Mm -hmm. were your experiences with the white community in Eau Claire?
2: I did okay I did fine I looked at it as See, I, I talked to myself, and I said, okay, you're going here to, you know, test where you are in your development after what you have done through at Ruston High, and in Ruston, this is your opportunity to try to enter this desegregated world again. And so it it went, I went pretty good. I, you know, I took an opportunity to meet people And, you know, there were people, there were certain receptions and opportunities to interact with people. And so, you know, I I took those opportunities. I looked at it, I looked at it in a way that this was helping me to get to where I needed to be for my next chapter.
1: You spoke quite passionately and eloquently about your experiences with civil rights in your pre-college days. Um, was this something that you continued while you were in college?
2: Absolutely. Well, in college, okay, I'm thinking grad school, but yes, in at 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 Eau Claire, I did, but I I tried to, I try I was very conscious of my experience in Weston, so I had to, if you will, I had to reframe my thinking about white people because i had i had had that horrible experience and so i took it as an opportunity it was kind of a test for me and so i took opportunities to engage with people that you know i didn't have to engage with just to just to get back because that's that's who i was you know i at 12 years old i went to an all-white school and was the only one in the class who can vividly see myself in the middle of the sea of white people and they put me in the middle. And, you know, they wouldn't even let us eat together in the cafeteria. That's why, while the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria by Beverly Tatum is so real, they would not let us sit together. We had we to be spread out. And so, of course, I said, you know, I don't think that's right. Why can't we sit? Where we want to sit. what you know, two, three, four black people together, that being a riot, we need to be able to sit where we want to sit. And you know, I would do things like that. But at Eau Claire, I took an opportunity to to kind of interact at a, on a different level, being very cognizant of what I was doing and why.
1: How about the social scene in both places?
2: They were very different. For me, a Grambling, like I say, Grambling was my, I just immersed myself into Blackness and just being there with my people, and it was just, I just loved it, just loved it. And I needed Grambling. I needed a Grambling at that time, because I, I, I couldn't have gone to Louisiana Tech. I couldn't have gone somewhere else at that time. I really needed it at Eau Claire, of course it was very different. We you know, we made we got together a lot as a group, but we also had opportunities to mix and mingle, but it was more planned, forced. It wasn't organic like it was at Gramlin. One of the things at gramlin I do wish I had done more of was a lot of my friends from Ruston went to went to Gremlin. I spent as much time with them as I did new people. And I wasn't there that long. So I really don't feel like I got to know as many new people. Like they were, I got to know them and we did things together, but they were not in my inner, inner circle as much. Like I really wasn't, you know, with me going to Eau Claire, you know, I was on campus about two and a half years. When I go back to Gremlin, I don't, you know, for homecoming or things like that. I know some people, but I don't know as many people as other people might know. Because I, you know, I was so rushed. I didn't even play until after I got out of college.
1: Gotcha. Because
2: I was so driven to have my plan. I wanted to change the world. <laughs> I didn't take time, as much time as I wish I would have. And as a result, my... My daughter went, and I I made sure that she enjoyed college more. You know, she stayed four years and that kind of thing.
1: You talk quite a lot about the segregation that was still very much a thing in Ruston in the mid-70s. How did you find similar things in Eau Claire? Now, Eau Claire obviously never had Jim Crow segregation, but I imagine there were examples of you know, white supremacy and such like that, even if they were more subtle than what was found in Rustin at the time?
2: Oh, no. They, they First of all, there were no Black people. That was interesting to me.
1: I bet that, it was.
2: There, there was no track to go across, or, you know, no Black church, no anything. I mean, I think literally, if I'm not mistaken, I was told there were no Black residents at that time that actually lived, in Eau Claire. Our experience was one that, you know, we had the liaison, It you know, helped to make sure, you know, he would invite us to his house and those kinds of things. But in the, in the, um, in my, with my roommate, for example, you know, it was the same kind of racism. She, she, she really did not want me to be her roommate. And, you know, I felt that. And it was, it was not like we ever really, we tolerated, I guess, the situation, but it was clear that she did not, she was not used to black people and did not
0: care about having
2: black roommates. So you still had those superiority, those you know, people, those instances where you knew who you were. But I had enough. I, you know, I'm, I was okay with that because I knew I was doing this for a purpose. I wasn't as worried about how I was treated, except, you know, I didn't want to be mistreated. wanted to be treated fairly in my classes and all of that, and I felt that was that was fine. But in terms of people being overwhelmingly nice, there were some who were nice, but, you, you know, you found some of the same kinds of attitudes that would be at Louisiana Tech, too. Part of it was because I don't think, and like my roommate, I don't think she'd ever, I think she told me she had never been with a real-life black person ever. It was the same thing when I went to grad school in New York. Mm -hmm.
1: What was the food like on (laughs)
2: campus? The food was like, you know, it was more variety, of course. It wasn't you know, wasn't soul food for me. I, I remember it was okay, but I'm used to, you know, I kind of expected it wasn't going to be rambling kind of food. But it was, it wasn't a big, big shift for me because I, I kind of had in my head, I had kind of, in my head, I knew what my goal was. So I was very, I wasn't surprised by anything, except when they told me there were no black people in Eau Claire, I didn't know that. And I wish I had known before I went because I was expecting to find a black church. Because that's mm-hmm. always important to me. But yeah. uh, you had to go to Minneapolis. I think we went to Minneapolis or somewhere to go to church. And maybe we went somewhere closer in Wisconsin. But I remember going to Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I I was okay with the food. It was different. But it was, it was a lot. It was more variety. I remember that. Yeah, it was more variety, but it was a different kind of food. But I was prepared for that. I
1: was okay. What struck you most about your experience at Eau Claire when you returned to Grambling?
2: Like I say, for me, I knew where I went. And so what I got out of it is that I'm ready. I can do this. You know, I I can enter the that world. I can enter the real world again. I know that I'm going to have to have my armor on, but I can enter it. And I can continue to do impact change and for social justice, social change, I can continue that fight. That's kind of what I got out of it because I was trying to, say, you know, make sure I could do, I could enter that world again and be okay. And so for me, it did what I needed it to do for me. And I represented myself well in my family because, like I say, I represented more than myself, and I felt good about that. So, when I got back, let me see what what you told me when I was there, I was there in the spring was it the spring of
1: was it the spring 75?
2: of seventy five okay, I think so okay so and i i graduated in seventy six started in seventy three seventy four okay, yeah, I must have been the spring of seventy five and then okay, and then I graduated spring of seventy six okay But it it had done what I needed it to do, you know. I remember talking to my parents and about it, and you know, kind of you know, looking at next steps of what I was going to do. Uh, One of the things I did I did figure out what I did not want to do. No, that wasn't there. I was going to say that I did have an opportunity to do some uh, observing and a mental
1: hospital,
2: and I knew that I didn't want to do that <laughs> for my life.
1: Wow, that's a good so thing was, to learn, yeah.
2: Yeah, that was good. But I never thought I wanted to do it. But I think one of the things is that in psychology, and I still see it today, a lot of times we don't understand all of the different options in psychology. We we know that there's clinical uh, and, you know, you hear about that, and then I, I, I had heard about community psychologists, and I kind of, you know, because I wanted to change the world. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to really be that person. I don't know how I thought I was going to do that, but I wanted to change the world. When I could see myself getting grants to kind of help people to be able to get along and impact communities and, you know, that kind of thing. So that's what I had had in my head as kind of a Martin Luther King kind of person. It did what I needed it to do.
1: Could you just give us a little summary of your further education and your career since then?
2: Okay. I went to State University of New York at Albany in ed psych and school psych. I attended Texas A&M in counseling psych. I worked as a school psychologist for five years in between because they had recruited me to University of New York at Albany saying that they were going to have a doctoral program ready by the time our class finished, but it didn't happen. So I moved to Houston, worked as a school psychologist, and then uh, went back to apply to Texas A&M University, which everybody said don't go there because they were very racist and sexist at that time in the 80s. But, you know, I'm kind of a person when somebody says, don't do something or they're not going to, you know, let you in or that kind of thing it gives me the motivation to say, okay, I'm going to try this. And so I went to visit and um, I thought it was okay and so I applied and I got in and did a lot of work for social justice, social change there. Actually, I was asked to be the assistant, graduate assistant for the department chair of that department in at Texas A&M, and I was constantly talking about impact and change, and, you know, classes were all white. They didn't have a black perspective. I remember one of the classes was on talking about women in work, and they talked about how women didn't work, and, you know, all of these. Time. Women would stay home and take care of kids and all that. And I, you know, raised my hand. I said, you know, this is not my experience. This is, this is, you know, very limited to white women. I said, what about black women? I said, black women have been working a long time. I said, black women had to work when black men couldn't get a job, and black women took care of other babies and breastfed white babies, and you know, and now you know people are like. Oh, wow. You know, so I kind of said, we need to change the curriculum. We need to be more inclusive. This was in the 80s. And so one of the things I did, I was the only African-American in my class, and I was like, this is not right. You know, more people need to be able to come to grad school. And so I talked to the department chair, and he uh, he gave me some funds, and I invited the psychologist. I told them, I said, what needs to happen is people in HBCUs need to understand how you're going to treat their students. So i talked them into allowing me to invite HBCU. I invited Gramlins, Prairie View, Alcorn, all the swag schools at that time. Jackson State, invited them to, and they paid for them to come to Texas A&M and talked about recruiting and all of this. And um, it was just very successful. So when I got ready to leave and graduate to go to my internship, my advisor and the department chair said to me, they were the same person, he said to me how much he had learned from me and What you know, how much he had enjoyed me being there, and all these things. And he said, "Now I have something I want to say." And I said, "Sure." And I was like, "You know, what is this? You know, what's coming?" And he said, "You need to be in the academy." And I said, "But I'm going to be a community psychologist. I want to change to where he said you need to be in the academy." He said because. You have been able to be so impactful as a student. Just think of what you could do as a professor. So I was like, mm, I, don't, I don't know. That's not really what my plans were. So I left and went to my internship. And before I could get to my in- internship well, Dr. George Godster from University of Georgia came to the Medical College of Georgia where I was for my internship to recruit me to the University of Georgia as a faculty member. So, of course, they had somebody had talked to somebody, and um, the rest is history. That's how I got in the academy.
1: Did I forget to ask any questions? Is Is there anything that you wanted to discuss that I didn't think to ask you about?
2: I don't think so. I guess I'd like to say that I have I talked about how I got into the academy. And each place I've been, I've met someone who's pushed me to do something else. And they observed the work I was doing. Because social justice, social change has been a running theme throughout my life. And so they've seen the work I've done. And I was recruited from University of Georgia to University of Kentucky and a whole lot there because that was – That's another whole story. It was very racist and it was horrible when I first got there. I stayed there 20 years and was recruited by the dean of the college there. And then the provost came, or provost came, and I've been encouraged, and he saw something in me. We were actually talking about diversity issues. And he wanted to see me when he first came to be provost. And I know that I've done a lot of social justice work at the University of Kentucky, nonviolent, but, you know, doing some things and writing letters and, you know, pushing the needle to get more, more people of color and faculty and uh, was uh, responsible for about 25 students, you know, in their doctoral work because at first, you know, black students couldn't get into the University of Kentucky into the doctoral programs, and so I was able to do some work that was very fulfilling to me. Even though it was more, it was difficult there, but it was a, I was able to see, you know, my worth and what my goals were, and to realize that social justice, social change theme in my life. And uh, so the provost asked me about diversity, and I said to him, I said, um, until diversity is tied to something important to people like resources, I don't think it's going to work here. And so, you know, he's Indian. He was like, he, you know, he disagreed. He believed in Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King. I said, Dr. King is my vicarious mentor. I said, but I have lived here. At that time, I had been there about mm, 13, 14 years. I said, I've lived here, and I know that that's the case. I said, a lot of work is happening. I was able to do a lot of work in the department as department chair. I was uh, named department chair when I was the only African American in the department, and so I said to them, I said, if you want a leader I said, if you want a manager, I'm not the right person. If you want a leader, I, you know, I'll consider it. I said, because I will, we need to do some work here. So I was able to do some work there in terms of making the department more inclusive. And so I said to the uh, provost that all of the work looks like is the college, but it's actually coming from my department. I said, you look at Statistics. If you look at percentages, it looks one way. If you look, if you unpack that, you'll see where the work is being done. And so he um, went back and he looked at it, and he he called me back in later that week, and he said, "You're absolutely right." He said, "Have you ever thought about being a provost or a president?" I like the way you think. And so my point is, is that everywhere along the way with the work that I've been doing. People have seen some things that said, you know, pushed me to another level, because I never dreamt of being any of this. Not even being in the academy, but it's been it's been good. It's been I've been able to fulfill, you know, my dream. And then when I was telling you at the age of twelve that I thought about, I wanted to know what made people treat other people the way they did. Human beings treat other human beings the way they did. I understood it and I was able to teach it. I taught a multicultural psychology class for about 15 years and so at Georgia and at Kentucky and helped to transform some lives. And so it's been a fulfilling career. It's, it's that was very fulfilling that come full circle and be able to actually understand it and actually teach
1: it to others. So Well that yeah. is absolutely wonderful. Thank you for sharing your story with us. And <laughs> you uh
2: well.
1: yeah, you I well. really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk with me and uh, to share your story. So thank you.
2: <laughs> well as you can as you can see certain things tie together and there have been critical incidents for me. So this been a good kind of life, I think, to tie together the different things and how they've played out in my life. I've enjoyed the work I've been able to do and what I've been able to accomplish in my little time that I've been working. So that's been great, fulfilling. But thank you so much. And thank you for reaching out very kindly.
0: And thank you for responding. You've been listening to the Voices of Grambling, a digital oral history podcast a production of the students and faculty of the Grandland State University History Department, along with faculty at the University of Arkansas. Be sure to listen in to one of our other episodes, and if you have a voice you would like to share or have a nomination for a voice that needs to be heard, please contact the History Department of Grandland State University for more information.